0: Then, there are the Seiche poems, which are set in upstate New York, kind of in more recent history. Um, So, you know, I'll say, um, I'll say Playing Monster, so try to envision the hot days of this last weekend. Um, And then I'll say Seiche, and then it'll be upstate New York. Uh, The only other thread that you should know about is that there are also found text poems. And those are from within the Seiche book. Um, And they draw from late 19th century New York Times articles um, about a lake near where my mother lives now in upstate New York. And I'm going to start with one of those. (coughs) Prologue. Found text dated 1897 describing events near my mother's home. Accuses himself of murder. He buried the body, exhumed it, threw it into Onondaga Lake after tying a stone about the neck Playing Monster, driving us through a wood, my father makes out a stag between pines in the mist. He pulls over for us to observe. I ask him to take a picture. No, he says, just look and remember, remember for the rest of your life. Playing Monster, interview. I want her to speak of it all, to liken herself to that ancient noble woman who bore a child on the battlefield, hoisted it in one arm, and wielded a sword with the other. You make me feel like I'm on my deathbed. Ask my sister. Her memory is better. Seiche. A phenomenon that occurs within a confined body of water, such as a lake, sea, or pool. Once disturbed, the enclosed water may produce a seiche or standing wave that moves across its surface or when below between the warmer upper and colder lower layers, the wave does not break. Seish, my mother is appointed dean of a college. She buys a house with a slate path, hires a man to cultivate the yard. It is the most land she has owned, a briar patch, berry trees. Wild peonies grow in the rough of the yard next door A friendly woman neighbor appears one day, invites my mother to take peony cuttings. Help yourself to whatever you would like. Seish. At twilight, a man approaches my mother's gardener. He is yelling at the gardener about cutting the peonies, trespassing on private property. The gardener believes the neighbor is drunk. But your wife gave us permission. My wife would never say that. She would never, ever say that. The gardener describes the exchange to my mother. She grows worried. I'm not worried, he says, I have my shovel. Playing Monster, Arizona. It is a place where all that lives has hardened and bristled against the world without. It is a place where a man can beat his wife and daughter and then his second wife, his son and three daughters, then his third wife without reckoning. I remember the red winds of a storm. Desert shocking hail on a field. We are all pelted and bruised on our backs, wind hurting us against fences. Through our cries, I hear the laughter of my father, his face red, terrifying. The storm, the very cracks of his teeth. Playing monster. My father and I are preparing a meal. He has to go outside, has to tend to something. He instructs me not to touch his ingredients, to continue slicing mushrooms. I do, wielding a knife too large for my hand. When he returns, I watch out of the corner of my eye as he stops to scan the items on the counter with heavy paws. He's so certain I have tampered with them. Seish. My mother is at the office. The house cleaner pulls into the driveway, spies a man drunk, moving down the back stone path, shouldering a large crossbow. The house cleaner asks my mother if she allows hunters on the property, though it is not the season for bow hunting. Playing monster. The cicadas emerge, leaving papery husks on our citrus trees. These dark silvery insects frighten my older brother. Knowing this, my father finds a dead one, tells my brother to hold it in his hand, for two minutes. My brother cannot do it. My father holds his wrist, places the cicada in his palm. The rest of him shakes terribly. Seish. My mother rises early to walk the dog though the dog can no longer make it up the hill. It is winter. It is dark. Suddenly my mother sees a man in clean camouflage and a headlamp in the road. It is not the neighbor, it is a different man. She continues walking, they pass each other. Your dog is quiet today, he says. Interlude, found text dated 1877, describing events near my mother's home, a monster in Onondaga Lake. He and his son were fishing when surprised by the sudden appearance of a monster. It swam along the surface for several rods, then sank out of sight. Seish. One morning my mother wakes and looks out her bedroom window. She sees tracks below in the fresh snow across most of the yard. They are a man's tracks reeling. Playing monster. When my nanny marries, there are small sugared bells on each tier of her cake. She gives a bell to my father, which he sets on his bureau. He discovers it later, chewed and broken, calls me into the room, the bell in his hand. I confess. He picks me up by my shirt with his teeth, our eyes so close he is shaking me in the air, dropping me. I make my way to my mother in the kitchen. I am shaking. She asks me what happened. I cannot speak. She takes me in her arms where I shake. Playing monster. My father apologizes. He mends his small holes near the collar of my shirt. Seish. Violence is the heart of it. A sure hand, all its capacity. Violence whistles, sparks, the hand clawing wind fire. Seish. While walking the dog sometime later, my mother again sees the man in camouflage. As they pass each other, he says, this will be a bad year for your college, then turns around, passes her, trudges into a random yard, the pitch morning. Seish, fire, the beauty is in the blue of it, that dangerous shadow around her, barely visible, licking its fingers. Playing Monster. My father takes it upon himself to treat our boils, the small buds a hazard of spending all day in swimsuits, by piercing them with clean needles he keeps in a small green prescription bottle. We lie on my brother's bed while he sticks the pustules. I clench my teeth. He commends my bravery. I know it hurts like fire. Playing Monster. Perhaps this is why when a man uncoils a paperclip, and uses it to gesture at me. I feel sick, must ask him to stop. Playing Monster. My father takes my sister and I to a fancy buffet one morning where we pile our plates with buttery eggs and fresh fruit. My father taps my shoulder. I look up to see his cheeks stuffed with grapes, teeth showing some like a squirrels. My sister and I laugh while sliding grapes in our own cheeks, making faces so we all laugh harder. The other adults stare at the ruckus, but we keep on passing the morning this way. Playing monster. What does it say about someone when she is the favorite child of a sociopath? I hated what he hated. Interlude, found text dated 1885 describing events near my mother's home. A steamboat's boiler bursts. Two sharp reports were heard. The steamer instantly enveloped in clouds of steam. The passengers saw a form fling itself out of a cloud, found writhing, scalded head to foot. In places the skin rolled itself up, looked as if he had been flayed alive. Seish. Someone sets a letter at each house on my mother's street saying that she caused a woman's suicide saying my mother did not renew the woman's teaching contract. The woman was sick. The letter claims that is why my mother did not renew her contract. The woman killed herself by hoarding pills while in the hospital. She killed herself in the hospital. She left small children. Seish. The envelope bears no source, a single sheet within. One recipient places it unopened directly into a plastic bag for the police. Thank you. Please welcome Ali Rowbottom. Too.
1: Thank you. Um, thank you guys for coming. Thank you, Skylight, for having us. You can hear me, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK. Um, no preamble necessary. I am um, just going to read from the beginning. <laughs> uh, this is the actually the prologue to Jello Girls. All right, here we go. <clears throat> she leaned forward, mouth opened for the wobbling pink jello. I steered toward her. Here comes the Jello Train. I sing-songed as if she were a child and I her mother, piloting a spoon into my baby's mouth. She kept her lips closed over a laugh focused on swallowing, and said nothing. Across the room, the TV flashed images of a main street somewhere in America, a dilapidated factory, faded red brick, a smokestack, and a plaque, the Jell-O Company, 1900 through 1964. My mother gestured, mouth still full, pointing at the screen, suddenly frantic. Today we're revisiting Leroy, New York, the newscaster said, birthplace of jello where in late 2011 and early 2012 a group of girls suffered mysterious Tourette's like symptoms with no known cause. The camera cut to old footage of the girls seated around a table twitching holding their own hands to stop themselves from flailing. Their eyes were rimmed in black liner. Their hair was neatly swept into headbands. Their lips were glossy and pink. Their mothers sat beside them tensed against the camera's gaze as if reined in to compensate for their daughter's unbounded bodies. We had followed the story closely, my mother and I, the mystery of Katie Krautwurst, a senior at Leroy High School, who in October 2011 awoke from a nap with her chin frozen. It jutted from her face at an unnatural angle. Her face was in spasm, her whole body twitching. Weeks later, her best friend, Thera, took a nap and woke up similarly altered. She, too, was ticking, throwing her arms, jerking her head, stuttering. The girls were both popular, both cheerleaders. Both had neatly conformed to the ideal of girlhood in their community, where the football team reigns supreme and jello salads are still served on holidays and at local church potlucks. And the other girls, the girls who followed, also falling asleep, also awakening changed. Those girls were cheerleaders too. But after a while, the numbers grew and the symptoms spread. Quiet girls like Lydia Parker were afflicted. One girl wasn't a girl at all, but a 36-year-old woman, a nurse. About this mystery illness, the media said many things. They said, this is how it all started and then offered theories of train wrecks and toxic spills, black mold in the classrooms, witchcraft in the woods. They said, there is no end in sight, and talked about the diagnosis, conversion disorder, mass psychogenic illness, but always with a disbelieving tone, their faces floating on the television screen, disembodied heads in small side-by-side boxes. On other shows, the girls sat on sofas beside their mothers, answering questions and twitching more violently the more they spoke. I know my daughter, Thera's mother said. She's a normal, happy girl. There must be something physically wrong with her. The mothers insisted and the girls all agreed. A refrain emerged. They wanted the world to know they weren't crazy. Before this, Thera stuttered, arms flailing as she started to speak. I was fine. As she convulsed, the other girls began to as well their movements picking up until the couch was rocked by the violence of their bodies. We weren't afraid of them, though the nation was. In the years approaching my mother's death, she and I were fixated on these girls. We talked about every unfolding aspect of their story, hours on the phone about their lives, about our lives, about how our histories were entwined, about how we were implicated, how this mystery illness was part of a system of symbolism one older than us, older than jello, consumerism, and America itself. One older even than witchcraft. One as old as men and women and words. This illness and its attendant metaphors, my mother told me, were what she'd been trying to write about all these years. This, she says, was why she'd started her memoir in the first place. She pronounced her memoir with a soft R memoir and talked about hers constantly. In fact, the book, almost as old as I was, sometimes seemed to me like my mother's second child, and I resented her flourished memoir for all the years she spent writing it, all the years she spent away from me. But until I got older, I never thought of the book the way she did, as a spell she wrote to stop her family curse and save herself. Her writing would reclaim her life story, she believed, and the story of her mother before her, her writing would become a counter-curse. We come from Jell-O. It is our birthright, bought by my mother's great-great-uncle-by-marriage for $450 in 1899 and sold 26 years later for 67000000 Jello million. Jell-O money paid my mother's health insurance. It many times bought my ticket to her bedside in the cancer ward at Mount Sinai, where, in the winter of 2015, we watched The Girls of Leroy, searching for glimpses of ourselves. Even so, my mother rarely ate the stuff. She saw Jello as an effigy of a curse she longed to escape. An apron, a kitchen, and long hours spent molding the perfect dessert had always seemed a cage to her, and she dreamed of freedom, art and travel, music and self-expression, a life sung loudly and lived without fear. But sick as she was that winter, Jella was all she could keep down. Who would have thought she whispered one night as I was feeding her? I pretended not to hear. It hurt too much to acknowledge every incremental loss she bore on the road to losing her life. I learned to be choosy with my empathy. She smacked her lips in mock satisfaction then and listed the food she'd eat if she could. Cold slices of pineapple, fried egg sandwiches, a burger so rare it dripped bloody juices. You'll get there, I said, coaxing her to take one more bite. Afterward, she slept, her little mouth open, sighs arriving like characters in her dreams, expressions of comfort, maybe, maybe of pain. Her red curls, touched with gray where the dye had worn off, haloed her face. Her hands were open at her sides, waiting for my palm which molded perfectly to the soft shell of hers. I sat, our fingers interlaced, looking out the window, keeping watch, waiting for her eyes to open, waiting to hear her voice. From her room at Mount Sinai, we could see the vented smoke from the Carver house's rooftops, colliding with the winter air, making a cloud we hovered above. We could see cabs on Madison Avenue, fluorescent against the gray ground, the dirty bodega awnings, leafless trees like bodies, thin and aching in the cold. I walked the barren city every afternoon, arriving at her bedside with all varieties of liquids and broths, black cherry jello because she had mumbled through half sleep that it sounded better than the strawberries she received for lunch each day. Peppermint candies for her to suck, never swallow. wonton soup I carried in a paper sack tucked under my coat and close to my body, to keep the heat in. That was in January. By March, she'd be back in the hospital, unable to keep her food down, and Jell-O would remain the only thing she could stomach. By June, she would stop treatments and return home to a rented bed in the sunroom, to the hospice care that helped her to a front row seat at my wedding in the garden, where I married the man I love into the Jell-O legacy. Two months after that, on the first day of September, she would leave me, passing away with the sunrise, unable to the end to talk about death, its cruelty, her fear, unable to fathom how it was that jello was the last meal she ever ate. I'll stop there. So, Diane and I are going to ask each other a couple questions, and then we'll have time for just a few questions from the crowd, um, and then we'll sign some books. Yeah. Call it a night.
0: Yeah. All right. right. Can I go first, because you read last? Sure. Go okay. ahead. Okay. Um, so, uh, I'm, thank you so much for reading with me, Allie. Good. Um, I'm really excited that we got to read together, because I feel like our books even though one is poetry and one is prose, I feel like they are in such deep conversation with each other um, in so many ways, uh, not only by in kind of a structural way, um, mm-hmm. though you weren't able to experience it in the amazing reading that Allie just did, but there's a lot of switching back and forth that happens um, in the book um, <clears throat> as well as content and um, just kind of like family and mothers. So. Um, I know that you're really sick of talking about Jell-O, so I have um, (laughs) hopefully more thoughtful questions. Um, I was reading a review in The New Yorker of a very different kind of book, but there was a quotation that made me think of yours, and um, it said, The exceptional reader friendliness has always been a Trojan horse, a way of delivering something pointed in the guise of something smoothly familiar. And I thought of that because your book is, on a line level, gorgeous, and it's like so readable, and um, it's a real page-turner. It's very hard to put down. And um, at the same time, the information that we're being fed as readers or that we're encountering, I don't want to be say being fed, but like, <laughs> it's a bad pun anyway. Um, <laughs> but th- what we're encountering in the book um, is very complicated. And it, and it's so much of it circles around patriarchy and violence and illness. Like, so, um, and I've already made this joke with Allie, but like, it's funny because some people really don't know what they're getting into for good or for ill with this (laughs) book. And like one of my favorite Goodreads reviews is like, I thought this, this was a jello recipe book. (laughs) And it's like, no, psych, it's about the patriarchy. Um, so, uh, I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that, like if that was something that you went into this manuscript wanting to, I don't want to call it a bait and switch because that sounds more nefarious than it is, but, um, you know, to kind of hold the reader with a certain tone while simultaneously instructing, hopefully instructing some um, about some of the bigger systems at play. Um.
1: Yeah, I'll give it a try. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I feel like a lot of us feel this way, um, us writers, in that like this book feels like it took a lot of different shapes before it came into its current iteration. Um, and part of the process of sort of figuring out what the book actually was and like how I wanted to tell the story and how I wanted to organize like all of the material that I somehow wanted to include was um, – getting real with myself about what I actually was enjoying reading. And that was um, a lot of f- literary fiction, honestly, and, and fiction that like moved. Um, and I, so I knew at some point that I wanted my book to do that as well. And then I also knew that in order for it to um, capture as much as I wanted it to and to be as ambitious as I wanted it to, I needed to rely on a form that was a little more traditional for lack of a better word than I had originally thought um I mean Diana and others in the room have probably seen elements of this book in, in other forms and it was much more like experimental um which goes to say that I think in terms of delivering information it felt like I needed a more of a traditional form and then also like in terms of like reaching good read users i guess mm-hmm. i needed like a form that maybe um did attract like a wider audience i guess and so those two things became considerations late in the in the writing process for me but does that answer the question yeah, yeah sort yeah. of
0: mm-hmm.
1: um now my turn mm-hmm. okay so um I have a bunch of questions for Diana, but the first one that I sort of wanted to address was this question of a sesh, 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 sesh hmm sesh, Um, A sesh, and sort of its role not only in the book's title, but in the, the structure of the book, um, and what you, Diana, have to say about this idea of a sesh as an indicator of genre um, and a governing metaphor for the work and maybe also its relationship to trauma and traumatic memory, if there is one for you. For me, I have I feel like there's a relationship there, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say.
0: Yeah, I would like to hear your theory. Um, <laughs> yeah, I you're also not the only one who struggles with the title. I think I definitely feel self-conscious of this title, but the word does feel really perfect. Um, it's a Swiss French word. Um, and I think the feeling of something building but never a moment of rupture Mm -hmm. uh, feels very apt for the kind of uh, psychological terror that I was dealing with as a kid um, and so many deal with. Um, And I think, you know, part of what made it hard to feel um, entitled to claim that it was abuse was that it wasn't what I was seeing on after-school specials as a child, you know? Um, And it's like, oh, well, this person didn't take off a belt and beat me black and blue. Um, And so only as an adult was I able to kind of recognize um, that psychological trauma is just as detrimental, um, or at least alternatively detrimental. Um, So I think that the seish, the word seish, really Captures that to me, captures that for me, not only in the playing monster poems, which are specifically about my childhood, but also with my mother dealing with a stalker, which, spoiler alert, nothing ever really happens, you know? Um, No one ever attacks her, or uh, there's just kind of this dread um, and worry, um, which, you know, part of the larger project of this book is about how you know, there are so many of these books that we see that it's like, I had this hardship, and I fought, and then I was able to survive. Um, or, you know, especially when if there are memoirs or collections of poetry or fiction even about abuse, um, you know, it's, and then I rode off into the sunset, or um, then the person went to jail. And often, the vast majority of the time, that's not the case. Um, So I think that the, the idea of the book is it illustrates how it's not the case. So even though my mother did the equivalent of riding off into the sunset by leaving Arizona, um, the aggression from men didn't stop. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and plus initially the Seish poems were so circling around this lake and so many of those poems were cut. but it was really beautiful because the metaphor still felt like it really applied.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really applicable. Having read the book twice, <laughs> um, That's to my great pleasure, I like. I think it totally works. You all will see if you haven't read it. <laughs>
0: um, okay, so it's my turn now. Um, I feel like we're playing like a like late night sleepover game. Yeah. I'm really liking this. Um, <laughs> so, um, I have a question about. You know, your ability to give yourself permission to write interiority um, because large portions of Jell O girls involve um, Allie's grandmother um, and also her mother, um, and sometimes her mother from her childhood, um, you know, pre Allie. So, um, and it's like very close third person. Um, So, we're kind of getting their thoughts. And so, I was really curious if you could talk about that um
1: yeah it was it's kind of a risk um (laughs) and one I had a lot of trouble taking I guess um so I was trying to write all that material while making it really clear that it was like my interpretation or imagination for a really long time and there were so many um I imagines Mm -hmm. sprinkled throughout the text it would be like I imagine she Felt blah 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 blah, Um, instead of just like she felt, Uh, and it wasn't until I workshopped the piece and people were like, "Can you take some of these out? Like, we get it. We know. Like, the reader's gonna know it's you imagining it." So you were born yet, (laughs) yeah. Um, So it was that, and then also strangely, this um, there's an opening section to Joanne Beard's Boys of My Youth where she does something similar, and that was really helpful to me just that it's like I feel like it's just like a page and she's a child in a crib and she's overhearing her mother and aunt speaking and there's a a way that she does it where it's the readers completely aware that she would have no way of either remembering or knowing what was going on and yet like she does it anyways and there Mm -hmm. was something about that that gave me a lot of permission um and then also you know there was a lot of stuff that I really did have to Interpret and trust that the reader would know that this was my interpretation. Um, and just sort of base. neither my mother or grandmother were alive at the time that I was writing their mm-hmm. interiority. So it, it was basically like, how would I feel in this moment? And um, where did I feel like I could take liberties and where did I feel like I had to just leave it blank?
0: Can I ask a follow-up question? Sure. So just because you had, so your mother's writing isn't included at all. And for some reason, I thought maybe you had some of your grandmother's letters. Letters, yeah. So so you had this source material, but you never actually included it at all. Right. It kind of reminded me of Sarah Manguso's ongoingness, the end of a diary or whatever. So it's like That's circles, mm-hmm. you know, this text. And you think, okay, so when am I going to actually see some of this? <laughs> Not that I, I think that you made the right choice, but I'm just really curious, you know, were you including it? And then d- were you eventually like, oh, God, I can't or...
1: No, I never, and this just speaks to my, like, sh- selfishness as a writer. <laughs> I never wanted to include, um, particularly, I feel like I might have been more open to my grandmother's letters, but mm. um, particularly not my mom's memoir. Um, and I think the reason for that is that I've, I have felt and did feel during the writing of this so enmeshed with her story and her life uh, in a way that was both <clears throat> necessary for me personally, but also something that I kind of resented. Like I wanted to get this story out so I could move on. And um, her story and her writing, I think I say this in the book, its she was a very verbose and effusive writer. <clears throat> and I could sometimes feel like she was taking over. And I would sort of be working alongside her manuscript and feel like her voice was trumping mine, and I would want to like edge her out and mm-hmm. and reclaim the work. So I think the tendency for her work to be um, such a presence in mine made me want to include it less. If mm-hmm. that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Oh Maybe one or two more. Yeah. Um. All right. So sort of on a similar, sort of similar. Detail. Um. Something that I love about your book is, and it's a small detail, but it's the inclusion of um, journal entries that are written by your mother, the mother character, um, that sort of chronicle the the good stuff. And there's so much sadness and darkness in playing monster, but there are these little snippets of light. And I am really fascinated by um, the necessity for humor or lightness of some kind in, in dark material, and I wonder you know, how you saw those those snippets functioning and, and how you see the relationship of lightness to so much darkness.
0: Yeah, and I, I generally neglect to read from them when I do readings um, just because of time. Um, but yeah, I mean, part of it was because I was writing, playing Monster when we were at CalArts together um, and it just happened that my mom sent us an email you know, my Mm -hmm. older siblings and I, because it was prior to my younger sister being born. And she said, oh, you know, I was just going through my diaries and I just typed everything up that had to do with you. And, um, you know, Mm -hmm. I was writing, I was active. It's actually something that a friend of mine explained to me is like an AA uh, thing, um, though that she's not, she's not a recovered alcoholic or anything like that. But it was, it's in the book that somebody, she had a therapist suggest that she do this where she was just writing positive things every day because her life was falling apart. Um, It was just chaos um, for like a decade. Um, So she had these things about my siblings and I, and so she sent them to us, and it was kind of like, you know, I had already started to practice using source material, doing documentary poetics, including outside voices, outside texts. Um, And so it just felt, it felt organic. And then in terms of how they function, I mean, I really appreciate that they provide some buoyancy, um, because it can be really tough to go through, a, a manuscript like this, you know, um, you know, reading about child abuse and stalking <laughs> and the patriarchy is like, <laughs> you know, it's hard. It's hard for anyone. Um, so I think kind of showing um, that there was a family and love um, and also kind of illustrating the kind of parent that my mom was and is, which is very loving and um, a thoughtful watcher, you know, Um, a curious, careful parent. And so I feel like it kind of gave her more shape too um, while simultaneously giving the reader something to hang on to from one tough thing to the other Hmm. um yeah yeah so maybe we could take like two questions from the group and then we can say goodnight. yeah
1: science books does anybody have any questions sure no pressure all the pressure Mm -hmm. yes No. The of your and homes, by the I guess I'm not exactly sure how to phrase this question, but
0: um I'm not even sure if it's fair to ask you to talk more about that process oh, yeah. or how long it took or yeah. what was hardest
1: or what you thought would be hardest
0: mm-hmm. and wasn't hardest and if you're really over it. Yeah, um that's a very good question. And it was honestly because I had multiple people tell me I should do it. <laughs> who had read both the books and, um, I was really fighting it. And then I know a few of my friends have heard this, but I had, I was kind of going through this grieving process, even thinking about it and was talking to a friend about it. And she said, well, you know, if three people call you a horse, it's time to buy a saddle. And I just was like, Oh, (laughs) damn it. You're right. And I was very lucky because I have a very dear friend who's a, really accomplished poet and she I was telling her about it and she was like oh my god let me do this I love this and I was like really and she said yeah just like give it to me and then and she did all this weaving for me and cut poems that I probably would have cut myself if I had sat down to do the project of combining these manuscripts but it would have been so much harder um and I went you know she finished kind of putting them together and i went to uh i picked it up from her house and went to a residency the next day and just like grieved the books um oh i should have i did burn a lot of things <laughs> cuz it was there was a a little stove um where i was in an a frame um but i i must have burned those cuz i needed kindling constantly but um so sure but um yeah i think uh, I think it's still hard for me to wrap my head around the idea of them being one, um, mostly because they've existed as two for longer than one. Um, and then as soon as I put them together, it was like co- like uh, you know shortlisted I was like honorable mention like for everywhere I submitted it. So it was so clear that it was operating in a way that was far more um, more than compelling but um, intelligent and thoughtful um, as as a piece of writing. so. Um, No regrets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? Can I ask a silly question? Sure. Do you have a favorite jello recipe? <laughs> Is that a really terrible question? Um, <laughs> No,
1: I've gotten it before, but I mean to be honest, I haven't tried. Like, there's there are rest not like how-to recipes in here, but there are descriptions of um what are now considered antiquated. There are some gnarly
0: recipes, you know,
1: like tuna surprise. Um, which yeah, (laughs) but you know,
0: (laughs) but of like your even if it's just like your own creation or something that you've eaten and liked.
1: (laughs) Um, I can make jello, like just jello that's about it and having recently tried to get a little more elaborate like no it's actually kind of hard and to get it out of the mold also surprisingly <laughs> challenging um but it's been an interesting experience because like immersing myself in in retro jello cookbooks and that kind of stuff like stuff that seemed gross initially has like now transitioned mm-hmm. into just seeming kind of doable. hmm So I'm I guess that's my way of saying like I don't have an elaborate jello recipe that I favor currently, but I'm Somebody. I'm open.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well thank you. oh what oh sorry. I was gonna ask a
1: question. Yeah. For Allie. Is, uh, what was uh, your family's reaction to the purple? Oh. Um well it's been it's I mean I think for any Person who's working in nonfiction, it's like always a, a challenge or um, an interesting experience. But I mean, for me, a lot of my family is no longer on this plane, so that's been kind of the easy part. Um, I wrote an essay for Salon about my dad's reaction to it, which anyone can go look it's at. Really good. Um, but I think you know for the most part the reaction that I have gotten both from my dad and and from my mother's brother who um they were estranged um has sort of performed the point of the book in as much as it's been a demonstration of the stuff that I'm I'm writing about in regards to the patriarchy and that kind of stuff so yeah <laughs> that's the best answer I can give you <laughs> to be determined I suppose yeah.
0: cool cool Cool. thank you all so much for coming thank you
1: for coming
0: you've been listening to the skylight books author reading series don't forget you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com thanks again for stopping by and we hope to see you soon